0: Did break from my series, uh, in the, in the morning, but, uh, I had no plan or intention of doing so in the evening. Uh, so we go on with Exodus. (laughs) I only have so many uh, uh, sermons in that drawer, so, uh, and I need to restock. So, uh, here, here we are. The next text in Exodus 34 verse 10. And as I say, it will, it will sound familiar. To what we read in Exodus 23, and we'll have a lot of this uh, in the chapters to come. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been uh, done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are uh, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep seven days You shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. And every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest, and you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, for I will cast out the nation before you, and enlarge your borders, Uh, neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year." You shall uh, not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice uh, of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruit of your land you shall bring uh, to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we praise you for this word. Uh, it is in many ways a repetition of what we've already seen. Uh, and yet uh, we know that, as Peter says, uh, to repeat the same things uh, is safe for the writer and for the preacher, and it is good for the hearer. Uh, And so, Lord, as these these words are brought again with a new and a fresh emphasis, but the same teachings, we pray that you would give your church an ear to hear them uh, and even myself. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you remember what uh, has just occurred, there is the golden calf incident. Moses comes down the mountain with the, the tablets in his hand. What should have been a glorious moment ends up becoming a travesty uh, of unbelief. Uh, The tablets are are broken. The covenant thereby, in essence, is broken. And we find Moses pleading with the Lord to remake the covenant. And the Lord, in giving the law again, a second time, is, uh, is answering Moses' prayer that he would pardon their iniquity and that he would go with them. He's saying, I will, I will go with you. And I'm going to give you the law again, uh, the law that he wrote once again on the mountain, on the tablets that Moses had made. And so this is God's answer to Moses' prayer of verse verse 9, which we ended with last time. My Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. The Lord's answer to that prayer is yes, I will do that. I will pardon you. I will take you as my own. And I will give you the law afresh as a token of my love. But as the covenant is remade, so to speak, we ought to notice uh, what it is that the Lord is particularly concerned to emphasize. For one thing, and this is more of an aside, but there's some value in seeing this. Look at the opening words Behold, I make a covenant. God is saying much in these few words. For one thing, He's saying, Here is something to behold, very similar to what John the Baptist and Jesus said when they came preaching, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. By the word behold, God is indicating in all those places that this is something that is a marvel and a wonder. And God's people ought to behold it with marvel and with wonder. But he is also expressing again as uh, throughout the book of Exodus and, and, and Genesis indeed uh, as the idea of covenant is so central to those books, God's sovereign will and his his own, to use the language of our confession, his own gracious condescension uh, by which he uh, he manifests himself as our own blessedness and reward by way of covenant. If the covenant would be remade, it must come at his initiative. Behold, I make a covenant. The making of covenants is God's work, not man's. Man may break the covenant, but only God can make them. And so again, we see, as I've sought to emphasize uh, all the way back uh, in Genesis up to the present, the, the, what, I'm call, what I call the unilateral dimension in covenant making. In making covenants, uh, God makes them, and in making them, uh, he makes certain promises, such as we see in verses 10 and 11 and verse 24. I, I won't read them again, but you find the Lord telling Israel what he's going to do. But also as an aspect of this, uh, as he sovereignly administers the covenant, he lays down certain provisions and commands by which he expects the people to uphold the covenant. And apart from which, he regards the covenant As broken like a husband whose wife is faithless as we'll later see the Lord saying the next thing uh, we notice as Kyle and Dillage observe this is a quote to recall the duties of the covenant once more uh, to the minds of the people the Lord repeats from among the rights of Israel two of the leading points which determine the attitude of the nation toward him. And which constituted, as it were, the, the, the main pillars that were to support the covenant about to be renewed. And this really, uh, provides the focus of the remainder of the sermon. In restating the law here in, in these words, there are two main pillars that the Lord is emphasizing about the law in, uh, as the things which, uh, which are especially important to the Lord. In the renewal of the covenant, both of which concern, surprise, surprise, here's a familiar emphasis, worship, worship. And so the summary of what follows once the Lord gives his promises of what he's going to do in verses 10 and 11, uh, giving the stipulations to Israel of what he expects of them. It is, in essence, a command, uh, the first pillar, to avoid false wish worship, as Israel had clearly not done of late, verses 12 through 17. And then positively, as the second pillar, the Lord states what true worship consists of. And so the two pillars that were to support the covenant about to be renewed, to use the language again of Kylan Dillich, were the avoidance of false worship and the pursuit of true worship. These are the central concerns of God in the making of covenants. Uh, and so we can neatly divide the passage under these two headings. Another way to point uh, to put this is to say that these two things are the things which the Lord especially hates and loves. The Lord has a special hatred for false worship among his people and among the nations, the heathens. But he has a special love which he is expressing, again, by way of covenant for uh, a true worship, which is according to his word and according to his will and which is rendered unto him as the one and only God. And, and, and if you think of it, one of the reasons, if not the central reason that he makes covenants is uh, at once to safeguard us from the presence of false worship while at the same time enabling us by his spirit and by his law To worship him rightly. That is the privilege of standing in covenant with God. It's that we are able to worship God rightly. That's what the Lord is expressing here as he renews the covenant. It's his first emphasis. He begins with false worship in verses 12 through 17. The first pillar. And there's two things that I would notice about false worship. The first are what I would call the conditions of false worship, which the Lord is warning against. It's clear that the Lord is teaching them what are the conditions in their lives which they have experienced uh, just recently, the conditions that lead to false worship, and especially the false worship of idolatry. Israel is uh, in a state of mourning. You remember, they took off their ornaments. They are repenting of this sin in particular, and the Lord is saying... Here are the ways to avoid it. Here are the paths that lead to it. And here are the ways to stay out of those paths. And so the Lord is addressing uh, the people, if I can put it this way, pastorally. If only they had the ears to hear what the Lord is saying. And and likewise, even today, the Lord is addressing us pastorally uh, against the false ways of false worship. And the first condition of false worship is the sinfulness of our own hearts. Let me say that again, just as though to underline it, the sinfulness of our own hearts. The conditions of a sinful, false worship arise primarily from within ourselves. Uh, John Calvin once said, at least it said, I don't know that I've read this, but something like, our hearts are idle factories. They are always devising false ways to worship the true God, or false ways to worship false gods. One of the things about the fall and Calvin it goes to great pains to express this, but but so does Paul in Romans chapter one, that sin has not eradicated our desire to worship, but it has warped it and made it depraved. It's depraved uh, a, a good desire and made it uh, a sinful one so that rather than an inward yearning to worship God, man in his unfallen state, sin drives us to worship that which is not God And so Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verses 23 and 25 uh, that professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image and made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped the sake and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Sin doesn't take away our desire to worship. Let me say again, it distorts it. It it makes idolaters of us. And so long as sin dwells inwardly in ourselves, we will have to contend with this. And so God addresses Israel as those who were inclined to this sin. As those, uh, as I say, who, who had just committed it. He says, take heed to yourselves, verse 12, to yourselves. Beware of the leaven of your own heart. Look after your own hearts and your own sin, lest you be driven again into this madness of idolatry. Likewise, verse 11, he says, observe what I command you as a positive counterpart. Take heed and be watchful, but observe what I command. What the Lord is saying is precisely what Jesus says to his disciples on account of the weakness of the flesh. That avoiding sin requires carefulness and watchfulness. Together with a concern to observe all of God's commands. It is ever the careless sinner who falls into the worst sins. And so be careful, God is saying, and distrustful of yourselves. For sin is crouching at the door and seeking your mastery, as he said to Cain. This is the Lord's message to the people. It's the first thing he has to say to them. And it ever remains his message in making his covenants. In safeguarding the worship That the covenant is meant to produce and maintain. Do not think, in other words, the Lord is saying, now that he's pardoned your sin and brought you into his covenant. That that sin ceases to be your enemy. That sin will cease to trouble you or present any danger to you. Or that it will cease to dwell within you. It ever remains a mortal foe. Something uh, that is there to trip you up and to drag you into the worst kind's. Of practices into false worship and idolatry. It is something with which you must ever contend. God is saying take heed to yourselves. For the worst sins lie within. And observe his commands. Number one. But the second condition. Is that of sinful associations. Avoid these God says. Do not make league with sinners. Sinners. Do not befriend sinners. That may have a strange ring to it. I'll address that in a minute. But do not befriend sinners. I'll say it again. Do not join them in their sinful worship. Do not marry their daughters lest your sons join in their idolatry. Destroy their altars. Break their sacred pillars. Do not allow the pillars of false worship even to stand or have a place among you. Let not their sin become a snare to you. This is precisely the teaching uh, that we find in both Testaments. This is not just the teaching of the Old Testament, but it, this is seized upon in the New and brought forward into the New. But lest uh, we, we think this is the main condition, I think we tend to think that. Remember that the primary condition uh, that fosters idolatry is not the second but the first, but it never uh, nevertheless, the second is dangerous because of the first. If we understand our own sinfulness and our own inclination to, to this sin, that the greatest danger lies within because of our sinful hearts, it, it, that we should realize that if we should befriend sinners, or worse, marry them, uh, that, uh, well, bad things will happen. Matthew Henry says... The way of sin is downhill. Always remember that. You do not make the sinner better when he joins with the godly. You make the godly worse. It's one of the great lessons of the early chapters of the Bible. Sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. That's a way of saying that the godly were marrying the ungodly. The godly sons were marrying the godless daughters. They were intermarrying. They were associating. They were coming together in covenant. What happened? Well... The way of sin is downhill and they were led to the worst kinds of sin. And so we find the same warnings in the New Testament, such as uh, what Jesus says about not being able to serve two masters. What the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians, chapter six, about not being unequally yoked, which actually does not have to do with marriage, but it can be applied to marriage. His main point in that passage, the end of Second Corinthians six, is that we cannot associate with sinners In their sinful uh, course and life. And especially in their sinful worship. Now that we belong to the Lord. We've been set apart. What about this idea of befriending sinners though? There's a lot of talk about that. I've heard about this ever since I've become a Christian. This idea that Christians ought to be tolerant of sin always. Because Jesus was the friend of sinners. And of course he was. Thank God he is still today. This was something which the Pharisees seized upon. They said, wait a second. We know the law. You're not supposed to associate with sinners, Jesus. What are you doing? They were taking something that was truly in the law and they were applying it to Jesus. But they were only revealing not their misunderstanding of the law on that point so much as their misunderstanding of who Jesus was. Of course, he was able to associate with sinners. This is the very reason he came into the world. To seek and to save that which was lost. He comes as one who was a physician and uh, who was who was able to be touched by sinners and yet not defiled he was never made worse by our sin because of who he was he is someone who is able truly and always to befriend sinners again i can only say all praise be to god on account of that for i'm a sinner and so are you and if jesus doesn't befriend you then there isn't any hope for you but be careful Uh, Taking that too far in your own life, to some extent we would join him in this, in an evangelistic endeavor. But the message of scripture in both testaments is you have to be careful. How many churches today in their uh, evangelistic zeal have given up the thing that mattered most, which is the purity of God's worship. The purity of God's worship. It's something that I even find historically has been debated in Presbyterianism. What's more important, evangelistic fervor or purity of worship? So far as I can tell in scripture, there really is no doubt what the answer is. It's purity of worship. Do not so befriend the world that you compromise the worship of God. That's the danger. You have to be careful here because you recognize how sinful you are yourself. The longer you dwell in the company of sinners... The more compromised you will become, the more you open yourself to the possibility and eventually the reality of false worship. Which perhaps, I think, explains the state of affairs as we find in the church today, Very uh, speaking very broadly. And so those are the two conditions uh, of false worship. The first arises from within. Take heed to yourselves, the Lord is saying. And the, and the second is sinful associations. And so do not uh, make league with sinners, God says. You remember what Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remove the sinner from your midst. But there's another thing that I would say about false worship, and that is the reason it is to be avoided. What the Lord says in verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. The answer or the reason is the Lord's jealousy. Just as he stated in giving uh, the first two commandments at first, in Exodus chapter 20. So here as he gives the commandments again, he gives the same emphasis. He states his jealousy. He tells us that he's jealous in particular for his worship. That's the thing that he wants to find his bride doing. Worshiping him in, in spirit and truth and the purity of holiness. He's jealous for worship in the same way a husband is jealous for the honor and love of his wife and is he to be faulted for this when he finds his wife is faithless is he wrong to regard her as a harlot verse 15 lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods uh, and so on did israel not see his jealousy burning when the sons of levi came through with the sword slaying the sons of israel let us never think it is a small thing to engage in, small, uh, in, in, in false worship. Either by worshipping other gods, breaking the first commandment, or worshipping the true God falsely, breaking the second commandment. Uh, for then, uh, the very thing we are contending with is the Lord's jealousy for himself. His own love for himself. And are we stronger than he? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, I read that this morning. The Lord's jealousy is not easily contended with, as the whole history of Israel proves. But on the other side, we have true worship. And there's a few things I would say about that. Uh, And this brings us to verses 18 through 26. One of the things that uh, the Shorter Catechism emphasizes that we talk about a lot is the mortification of sin. But there's another side of that. And I believe it's in the catechism as well. Uh, and that is uh, vivi- vivification. Uh, we're not just to put to death sin. But we are to live unto righteousness. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Put to death false worship. Live unto righteousness by true worship. He would not only have us to turn away from idolatry. But to glorify him alone as God. And to worship him according to the rule of his word. And, 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 and in saying that, we realize that he does not live, leave us in the dark as to how this would be done. He abundantly supplies the ways and the reasons to worship him in a way that is pleasing to him and that accords with his glorious nature. In other words, there's no danger of falling into false worship so long as you make the word of God your rule. The truth is, he who would worship God rightly lacks no light as, how, as to how to do so. God gives more than enough direction to the godly to know how to do this. He does not leave us to ourselves to discover or to devise a way of worship which underscores the sinfulness of idolatry and false worship because it goes directly And it always goes directly against the clear light of his word. And it's thus seen as in Israel so today to be an act of deliberate rebellion against the clear light of God's word. Idolatry is not, let it never be said, a sin of ignorance. Paul wouldn't even allow that for the Gentiles. It is a sin against knowledge. It is an act against rebellion. It is a rejection of the truth and an embrace of the lie. But you see, God in filling our minds with directions to worship him is telling us that if only we will do this and make his rule our practice and our guide, then we will be busy enough and indeed happy and blessed enough, far too much to ever want to find another way. We will never veer into false worship because we will always be busy attending All that he's given us to do. Beyond that, he gives his people reason enough to be holy and happy. And if they will not, then the fault is their own. Who can look at this book and ever think that God has left us in the dark as to how he would be worshipped? Here there is light enough to illumine our feet as to the greatest subject that will ever concern us, namely the worship of God. And so to ask you very simply... Do you want to know how to worship God? Do you want to know the will of God? Do you want to see his covenant expressed to sinful men? Very simply, look to his word. You notice that's the final emphasis. The Lord uh, tells Moses to write the words down. The inscripturated word of God. This is the guide of the people of God and the worship of God. And there you will find the answer to your every question. How am I to worship the true God truly? It is a subject which he has abundantly revealed in his word. And, and you notice uh, it, when he says that he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, that's the end of verse 28, that the emphasis, this is not the only thing that he wrote down, but the emphasis of what Moses wrote down was the Ten Commandments. It was the greatest thing he wrote down. And so we're not surprised to see that in regiving the law, that the great emphasis uh, of, of of what we find with this um, with this greater emphasis on worship is the Ten Commandments, and in particular the first four commandments. We find commandments one, two, and four, and I think it could be argued that the third is implied. The guide to worship for Israel and the guide to worship today of the church uh, is found in the first four commandments. The great rules, the true essence of godly worship laid down. The first commandment, verse 14, God alone must be worshipped and no other. And he will not tolerate false worship to be mixed with his. He will not uh, stand for images or idols to represent himself. Verse 17, the second commandment restated. And he wants us to worship him and observe his ordinances Before Him. As we come to worship, He wants us to come before Him. Verse 23. In humble reliance upon Him. Verse 24. What He's saying in those two verses is, I want you to go and I don't want you to worry about leaving your home behind because I won't allow the enemy to ravage it. In other words, you needn't worry that you will suffer for it when you come before Me in obedience to My summons. God will look after your homes if you look after His worship. If you come before him when he calls. In other words, to be afraid to worship God, that somehow worshiping God when he calls us to worship him places us and our homes in undue undue danger, is to forget the one whom we worship. And it is likewise to forget that it makes us to contend with something far more dangerous, which is his own jealousy. We also find the fourth commandment restated in verse 21 and look how it is put six days uh, you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. What is he saying there at well, least pointing especially to the busy season, the time when you might say, as people still say today, well, we got a little too busy at work. We didn't make it to church. Do you realize that places you in the category of one who is engaged in false worship? He who neglects the true worship of God. Plowing time and harvest. That's when you especially ought to be concerned for God's worship. And to look after your own souls lest you are given again unto idolatry. Take heed unto yourself, especially on your Sabbaths, when you are uh, perhaps more busy than others. Forsake not the Sabbaths of God just because you're busy. Worldly employments which detain us from his Sabbath worship, let me say again, must be seen as Sabbath breaking. It belongs in the category of false worship. It is neglecting true worship and thus by implication engaging in false worship. The man who does not keep Sabbath is guilty of the two earlier sins, at once, he does not take heed to himself and he enjoys the company of sinners when he ought to have been in the house of God in the company of the saints. and so you notice those three commandments, together with the emphasis of appearing before him, entrusting ourselves to his safe keeping and care. But lastly, together with uh, the three uh, of the four commandments, we see a special emphasis as earlier. On the feasts of Passover, the Feast of weeks, and the Feast of ingathering. And here I won't go into the nature of those, as we saw in earlier sermons, but the, t- the tenor of this commandment as, with, uh, as it regards um, true worship. Again, God is commanding obedience to his way of worship. Which, again, we see will keep us busy enough if only we keep his ways. This is part of the ceremonial law, obviously. The first four commandments are not, but this is. You won't find this in the new covenant. But in either covenant, you find enough commandments. If you just keep unto those, you will find it difficult to contend for things that aren't in God's word. People contending. It's a source, but I'll I'll just say it. uh, Because I think it's a good example. People contending for Christmas... When they ought to be contending for Sabbath. Contend for Sabbath and I promise you'll be busy enough. You'll be busy enough. But there's something else that God is saying. And this is especially wonderful. He's saying these are days of feasting. These are times of rejoicing. Times when holy obedience was mixed with holy joy. Times to pause and reflect and rejoice in the fact that God is generous and good. And so God in calling his people to attend unto his ways and to worship him. And I said this earlier are not only holy enough but they're happy enough to, to, to ever want anything else. God wants his people to be happy and delighted in himself. Matthew Henry again. Men need not be drawn from their religion by the temptation of mirth. For we serve a master that has abundantly provided for the joy of his servants. Serious godliness is a continual feast and joy in God always. I love Matthew Henry, but that has to be one of the best quotes yet. Serious godliness is a continual feast and joy in God always. Do you realize that's what God is calling his people to? Rejoicing and feasting in the presence of God. And so I'll say it again. That those who attend upon God's ways and God's ordinances are those who will be most holy and they will be most happy. And the closer they draw to him in his ordinances and his appointments and his laws, the more they will be made to rejoice in him. And so the religious life that he offers is one of continual rejoicing and praise in his presence. And it is sad, therefore, in light of this fact that the godly, the sons of God, would ever choose or want anything else but such, uh, alas, is the way of sin. To take us off what is best and happiest and to lead us to what is worse and most miserable. Yet the way of obedience... To God's revealed will. Is the way that not only makes us happiest in this life. But in the life to come. It is that which leads unto heaven. But even places man now. To some uh, degree. In heaven before the time. God in engaging man. In his worship in this world. Is only giving man now. Before the time. A taste of heaven. So that we see it is not only God who delights and loves true worship, but he would make us to delight in it as well and to fall in love with the glory of his holiness and his law and his worship. Let me just put it like this. I remember R.C. Sproul once putting it this way. And I'm contending against what is often said, although we all feel it. I feel it sometimes myself to engage in worship is not boring. It is never boring. It can never be boring. That is not possible. If you think that the worship of God is boring, then I wonder if you know the God we worship. It may not be boring, but I do confess, along with the confession, that it is ordinary by God's own appointment. The confession speaks of the outward and ordinary means. It is even to use the language of the confession, or excuse me, of scripture. It's clothed with weakness. And so it might be ordinary, and it's certainly weak, but it's never boring. Now, I emphasize these things as something in contrast to what we read here. They were to delight in the glory of God as they beheld his marvels and his wonders, which he promised. They had not only seen, but they would see again and again. There was nothing ordinary about those days. But our worship looks different, doesn't it? Not only are the feasts set aside But the wonders as well. And yet I can tell you truly. We have something better. And we have reason enough to rejoice and feast in the presence of God. Far more than they. And that reason. Is the record in the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The words that are written there. Which are for us as uh, the old covenant for the Jews. The basis of our worship, the written word of God. When I look to the pages of the New Testament, not only do I find what Israel found in the Old Testament scriptures, which is the very word of God. But there, most importantly of all, I read of Jesus Christ crucified for me and raised on the third day. He lays down his life for me and takes it up again by his own authority. And he commands me to be saved. Repent and believe. These are his summons. Repent that is from The ways of idolatry. Repent from false worship. Break off sinful associations. Begin to worship God aright. Commune and fellowship with me. Follow me, he says. Look not to the world to be saved. Look to me. Come to the Father by me. And when I come to the Father by him. Obeying the summons. What I find is peace and joy and eternal life, as well as the true and only way to worship God. Furthermore, he teaches me not only how to worship God aright, but he promises to meet me there in the hour of worship, which is what makes worship so sweet and pleasant and yet so solemn and serious. It is here that we meet with the living God, the resurrected Lord, to those who gather in his name and are busy about his ordinances He promises to be there in the midst of them. And so I ask you, how could such a prospect ever be considered boring by the faithful and uninteresting? What a privilege and what a blessing. What a glorious opportunity to meet with God in the hour of worship. But the truth is, as you know, people simply don't believe this today. They've lost a sense of the glory of God. They've lost the sense of the meeting place, as we've been calling it, the place where God and sinners meet together. But let me say something else that the hour of worship becomes as well, and there's no way to miss this emphasis when you look at the history of Israel and what the Lord is saying to them. The hour of worship becomes the arena in which our faith is being tested. Or at least where it becomes clear what it is we really believe and where our true allegiance lies. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? Remember, that's what Jesus asked Peter. Well, look to your Sabbaths and perhaps then you'll get an idea. You who claim to follow Jesus, do you worship him weekly? To some extent, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? And yet, uh, here we are. Uh, the message still ought to be preached, even if only to a few. Remember the words of John Calvin. I wanted to read this at the end of Sunday School. I never got to it, but we'll, we'll look at this next week. But these are famous words of John Calvin, perhaps a little bit surprising. He says, the whole substance of Christianity consists in two elements, a knowledge first of the right way to worship God, and secondly, of the source from which salvation is sought. The knowledge of the worship of God. And the knowledge of salvation, or the source uh, from which salvation is to be sought. The answer to both is Jesus Christ. Both are found in Jesus Christ. As He reveals to us the Father, He reveals the true and the only way to worship God, which is through Him. And as He comes as well, He reveals the one and only way of salvation, which is, again, through Him. He teaches us the right way to worship and the way to be saved. Or let me put it like this, bringing the ideas together. The way uh, of salvation, which Jesus offers, is bigger than me. Bigger than my own personal salvation. My own sins in relationship to God. Thank God it includes that, but it includes more. For his saving work brings me into the church, which is his bride, for whom he died. The church which he says to Peter that he is building. And against which the gates of Hades will never prevail. And there in the church of Jesus Christ. God is honored and worshiped. There God will ever find his saints adoring and praising him. And so a full view of salvation always includes the church and the Sabbath. Because without these there is no room to worship God. Which as soon as a man becomes a Christian becomes a central concern. As soon as he has faith and is saved, he inevitably finds his way into a church. It's the first reflex of faith. Having uh, latched on to Christ, he seeks to latch on to fellow believers in the church. And so, uh, the new believer comes into the church. And before long, it becomes strange to him that any Christian would ever want to do anything else on Sundays. It becomes unimaginable that a Christian would want to do anything else. And yet... Looking to Israel, he finds in his own life a danger begin to emerge. He finds, like Israel, that there is a danger that lies within. Also dangers that lie without. The sin of the world and of his own heart cramp and squeeze out his first desire. They begin to crush faith if he does not take heed to himself and take care to observe God's commands and hold fast to Christ and not forsake the gathering of the saints. And so, this ever remains the hour of worship, a test, the test of faith. And it ever will be till we join the saints in heaven in their continual chorus of praise. I ask you, what of God's worship and of his Sabbaths there is, I say again, the real arena in which our faith is being continually tested and the covenant of God is being revealed to us. Amen. And let us uh, return praise to God for his word and singing together as we stand hymn number 83.